Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Most members of our audience still recall that following the election of Joe Biden as president of the United States in uh, 2020, Donald Trump became the centerpiece of an aggressive national campaign to challenge the legitimacy of that election. These challenges resulted in the infamous January 6, 2021 insurrection, which included violent mob actions at the nation's capital that was designed to prevent the ceremonial certification of the voting results by Congress. Since that event, Trump has continued his effort to convince the public that the results of the elections were unlawful and has made this claim the main issue in his ongoing campaign to become the Republican nominee for the 2024 presidential campaign. Yet, a congressional select presidential committee, after an extensive investigation, reported to the nation that Donald Trump and his allies had engaged in illegal efforts to overturn those election results. In federal court, more than a thousand participants have been prosecuted, convicted, and imprisoned for their involvement in the January 6th attempted insurrection. To date, Donald Trump has been indicted in two federal court jurisdictions and in a New York prosecution. Presently, he is also the subject of a grand jury deliberation in Georgia and continuing federal investigations. Despite these legal determinations and proceedings, Trump remains as the front runner for the Republican nomination and his allies around the country and in Congress are engaged in robust efforts to prevent his prosecution in the federal and state court prosecution. Tonight, as we prepare once again for the beginning of campaign efforts to elect the next president of the United States in 2024, we will discuss the impact, implications, and importance of the prosecutions of Donald Trump. Our guests for this discussion are Dr. Jarvis Hall, our political science expert from the NCCU Political Science Department, Professor uh, Tamika Moses, a NCCU School of Law professor and a former federal prosecutor and our residential constitutional law expert, Donald Corbett, who is also a professor at the NCCU School of Law. So thank you all for uh, joining with us for uh, for this discussion. Thank you for having me, Professor Joyner. Well, Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. 
Yeah. Well, I guess a, a good place for us to start this uh, discussion, and, and I guess I'm just going to defer to uh, uh, Professor Corbett on this. Can you kind of describe the uh, the charges that uh, Donald Trump is facing uh, right now? So the optimal question is, which one? <laughs> because there are several. Uh, Related to what I think is the most important one, which is the most recent one, uh, there are basically four charges, Professor Joyner, stemming from three criminal statutes. The first one is what's called conspiracy to defraud the United States. Uh, just for people who don't know, conspiracy basically means you and at least one other person are conspiring or trying to commit a, an, a violation of the law. That's what the term conspiracy means. And the first charge has to do with, like I said, conspiracy to defraud the country. And that's tied to his dishonest and fraudulent behavior to disrupt the process of how votes are counted and certified after a presidential election. Then there's conspiracy against rights, which actually has, I believe, you know, the professor all about this. It's actually a derivative of the Ku Klux Klan Act, where individuals uh, tried to keep Black people voting uh, back when the Klan was much more active. And the idea here is that President Trump inspired to uh, basically have 7 million people's votes, uh, I'm sorry, 81 million people's votes who voted for Joe Biden basically invalidated through his attempts to overthrow the election results. And then lastly, uh, an obstruction of, of or an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding in addition to a conspiracy charge of obstructing an official proceeding. And again, that ties back to the certification results. Uh, so there's also these other charges out there. He's got the first one came in New York State, which was related to the falsification of, of business records. And that was tied to an alleged payoff of Stormy Daniels. Who, uh, so she'd be quiet about their alleged affair. And somehow I think they're trying to tie that to campaign finance illegalities. And then the other uh, one is pending in Florida. It was brought by, again, the special counsel tied to his keeping and his failure to return classified documents after he left office. So when you add them all up, it's somewhere between 75 and 80 different charges. But these are probably the most serious ones because they relate to something directly he did while he was in office. Well, thank you, uh... For that, uh, Professor Moses, can you kind of, you know, as a federal uh, prosecutor, you you've been through uh, this uh, this situation before. Can you kind of explain to our audience uh, the difference in what evidence is needed to obtain a uh, an indictment, as opposed to the evidence that is required uh, to obtain a conviction? Uh, in court, and how do, how do those two processes uh, differ? Sure. So in terms of the process for obtaining the indictment, um, the standard there that is used is probable cause. Um, so in the federal system in particular, a case is presented before a grand jury, which is much like a, a, a trial jury, except there's no judge, no defendant, etc. Um, and the government presents evidence to the grand jury to support um, certain charges they wanna bring against a particular defendant. So in the case of the January 6th indictment, um, Special Counsel Smith would have submitted these charges 
to the grand jury complete with evidence to support each of these charges. Um, the grand jury would then consider all of the evidence that has been presented and apply the standard of probable cause to determine whether or not an indict indictment should be issued, right? And so when you think of probable cause, um, the standard is more like it, it the, uh, the standard is that the evidence shows the defendant here, Donald Trump, more than likely committed the offenses that are there. Um, and that's basically the, the standard at that juncture. Um, once this case gets to trial, however, most people know about the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So once this case actually does become before a trial jury, those jurors would hear all the evidence presented um, by Special Counsel Smith, as well as any defenses or evidence presented by Donald Trump and his team, and then make the determination as to whether or not um, the counts, each of the charges have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt, right? And most prosecutors would tell a jury, it's not beyond all doubt, right? Just a doubt based on reason and the evidence that is presented in court. Okay. And then just kind of move, moving us uh, from, from, from that point, then uh, Doc, Dr. Hall, why is, you know, in light of all of this discussion that we've had so far about these charges, uh, why is Donald Trump still the uh, leading candidate to become the uh, nominee of the uh, Republican Party for the uh, 2024 presidential uh, campaign? Uh, that is a good question. <laughs> and I don't know if I have a uh, a good answer uh, for it because I am befuddled uh, by, by the, uh, the situation that we find ourselves in because uh, in the past and, you know, the near past, really, any candidate that had this kind of um, uh, criminal uh, exposure uh, hanging over him or her uh, would have dropped out of the race, would have been pushed out of the race, and we would have been looking at uh, other candidates uh, as as possible nominees to represent the Republican Party or whatever party uh, the person belonged to. But, but that is not the case. Donald Trump has a firm grasp on about 30% uh, of, the, um, of the electorate and especially within the Republican Party. And it's a firm, and, and what I mean by firm grasp, uh, it's like he said several years ago, he could shoot somebody uh, on Fifth Avenue, I think he said, um, and he would not lose any support. He has those people firmly in his camp. And, um, and then you have a, uh, another uh, group of voters who uh, are not so sure uh, they like Trump. Uh, they don't like all of the um, uh, all of the criminal stuff that's swirling around him. Uh, 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 but at the same time, uh, it, it would just take a little persuasion, one way or the other, uh, to convince voters from that group uh, to support him. Also, and what's also befuddling is the uh, fact that his opponents for the Republican nomination. Uh, find it very hard in many instances, uh, uh, there are some exceptions, to criticize him, to use this as as uh, uh, as blood in the water to attack the uh, front runner. But uh, they refuse to do that because they don't want to alienate the uh, Trump base. And it is one of the more bizarre uh, the political 
uh, environments that we have seen in a long, long time. Yeah. And, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, so we've talked about the criminal cases, and of course, there are some very serious civil cases as well. Um, do one of you want to talk about the, the civil cases that um, are confronting the former President Trump? I can speak real quickly about the, the primary one, which is a defamation civil suit. People don't know. The primary civil suit that he's dealt with over the last year, year and a half, came from an author named E. Jean Carroll, who sued him for defamation. Uh, defamation is a civil suit, which basically says that you have said or done something to ruin my reputation in the community. Uh, and this involved an alleged claim of rape by Ms. Carroll. And uh, a jury found him liable. I believe in the amount of $5 million uh, earlier this year related to that particular charge. Uh, he then post verdict uh, assailed her again and essentially called her a liar again. And she has uh, reinstituted claims based on that set of, of, of um, statements by, by President Trump. So uh, his, his, his legal calendar and and his political calendar, I'm not sure how all that works out. There's a lot of interplay between the two of them. And it's so it's not just about the, the criminal cases that we've talked about today. He also has a civil case hanging over his head as well. Well, in, in, in light of, of, of all of, of, of that discussion, uh, and, and I know as, as an attorney, and I've practiced law for uh, many years that uh, one of the uh, things that you guard against in uh, the criminal process is attempting to uh, influence the uh, jury or to influence the uh, public uh, that might become a part of the uh, the jury. And uh, some places that's called tampering. Uh, but in most instances, it results in some... Uh, directive from the judge to uh, ramp it down or to uh, basically uh, uh, prevent a person from uh, outside conversation uh, about uh, the case. So we're going to take our break uh, right now. But when we come back, we want to start uh, with the, uh, the, the question of uh, Trump's efforts to inflame the population and uh, Professor Moses, I mean, Professor uh, Corbett uh, mentioned that there were 81 million uh, people who voted for uh, Joe Biden, 75 million who voted for uh, uh, Donald Trump. And there is this distinction between the red and the blue states and where the trial should be held. And uh, to, to get you all to kind of talk about uh, this uh, effort by uh, Donald Trump to influence the uh the public well, we're going to take our break uh right now want you to uh, stay with us as we uh, continue our discussion of the uh, implications impact and importance of the prosecutions of uh, donald trump we'll be right back Hello, this is kiana woods and i'm a third-year law student at north carolina central university school of law 
This week on the Legal Eagle Review, we discuss the implications, impacts, and importance of Donald Trump's criminal charges. As many know, Donald Trump was a successful entrepreneur, celebrity reality personality, and currently known for being the 45th president. On March 30, 2023, Trump was indicted by a Manhattan grand jury for his alleged role in a hush money scandal with X-rated film actress Stormy Daniels before the 2016 U.S. presidential election. The issue of the indictment made Trump the first president to be indicted. After the first indictment in New York in March, Trump was indicted again in Miami, Florida for mishandling classified documents after his presidency in June. The criminal charges did not stop there. Most recently, Trump was indicted on August 1, 2023 in Washington, D.C. federal court for his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. Ironically, with all the criminal troubles he is facing, Trump is still focusing his attention on the 2024 election. This is Kiana Woods with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, where we are discussing the uh, implications, impact, and importance of the ongoing prosecutions of uh, Donald Trump. Our guest uh, this evening, Dr. Jarvis Hall, who is uh, a political science professor at uh, North Carolina Central uh, University, uh, Professor Tamika Moses, and uh, a uh, professor here in our criminal uh, procedure uh, courses and former uh, federal prosecutor and our uh, constitutional law expert, uh, Professor Donald Corbett. And we are continuing. Uh, this discussion, as we took our break, we were uh, raising the question about uh, efforts uh, to articulate by uh, Donald Trump his position or his continuing claim that the uh, 2020 elections were uh, stolen uh, from him and that he was the uh, victim of some illegality which has uh, spurred this uh, violent uh, outrage uh, on the part of uh, many people in uh, in the country, uh, resulting in the uh, January 6, 2021 insurrection at our nation's uh, capital. Uh, so the question that we're raising is, uh, how how is it that Donald Trump is able to get away with uh, these continuing attacks, on public attacks, on uh, his uh, prosecutions and then uh, those individuals who are engaged in the actual prosecution of the uh, case under the claim of uh, First Amendment rights. So uh, which one of you want to start us off uh, with uh, with a response to that? Go ahead and get us started because um, it is an important question. Um, as you mentioned before the break, anytime a case is indicted and you're preparing for trial, um, it is really important to ensure that the parties are not, quote unquote, trying the case in the public eye, right? So oftentimes there's focus on the prosecutors and making sure that they're not doing tons of press conferences or issuing tons of statements um, because you want your potential jurors to decide the case based on the information they receive in the courtroom and not in the media. Um, and so when you look at President, well, former President Trump and his um 
tweets or posts um, to date related to each of his indictments, um, it is quite shocking because usually someone, usually the prosecutor or someone in um, their office would request something from the judge requesting that they kind of minimize his ability to speak on these pending matters. Um, and I think you saw this most recently with the judge issuing an order in the January, January 6th matter, specifically telling him that he couldn't speak to witnesses about the case without counsel being present. Um, I think that was the primary opportunity, however, to extend that to also not speaking about the case um, on true social or any other kind of platform that he uses. Um, I think special counsel is getting there with some of their initial requests since that time, excuse me, additional requests since that time related to his threatening communications, um, specifically the one where he said, you know, if you come after me, if you come after me, I'm going to come after you. Um, and so he, they're getting the court involved slowly but surely. Um, but I believe they should have gotten involved way sooner, even with this First Amendment claim he may or may not have. Um, there are times when it is important to quiet the parties to ensure, again, that the jurors are not coming in with preconceived notions related to the legitimacy of a prosecution or a case. And, and I don't see how anybody, including his uh, legal counsel, can control uh, Donald Trump. It's been his, uh, his modus operandi to attack those who either attack him or he perceives uh, uh, are attacking him, uh, be it in the legal matter or in the political realm. And so that's the way he operates. Uh, and, and, and that, you know, that goes back to the political question, too, as to uh, how he's able to uh, garner and to maintain the amount of support that he has especially within the Republican electorate, uh, because he is able to make the argument that um, uh, the reason they're coming after him is because they are coming after you. And so when he frames it in that way, it makes it appear that uh, he's a martyr for uh, grassroots everyday people. When of course, most people would see uh, what he says and how he says it, uh, as simply self-serving, as um, a way for him to uh, um, to create an environment where it would be difficult uh, from a political perspective and to some extent a, a legal a, a legal perspective for people to come after him. But from the legal perspective, uh, and the lawyers that can speak to this, but it, it seems to me that uh, something needs to be done, especially with these uh, 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 criminal cases to prevent him from doing that. And of course, he's going to claim, uh, just as Irv just said, that uh, 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 he has a First Amendment right, uh, especially as a political candidate for the presidency to talk about these kinds of things. Because for him, uh, uh, there's no real division between what's going on with him uh, in, uh, criminally uh, and what is going on with him politically. All right. Professor Corbett, you want to add to that? Uh, sure. Uh, I, I am, uh, for people who don't know, the First Amendment typically protects against 
individuals or protects the keeps individuals from being punished by the government for what they say, and in some cases what they do. So it protects speech and conduct, uh, but it's not an absolute set of protections. So as an example, if I wanted to stand in front of the law school and complain about how the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade, then I could do that. And they're not supposed to be able to throw me in jail for that. Uh, but if Professor, if I kidnap Professor Dawson and then I email her children and tell her and tell them that unless you give me X amount of money for a safe return, she's in trouble. Well, I couldn't subsequently say, well, that speech was protected by the First Amendment. Uh, so there are absolutes to that particular uh, right, just as there are with most of the rights under the Constitution. So it feels to me what they're trying to say, uh, at least thus far, is there's no distinction in that all speech is protected by the First Amendment. So him being able to stand up and say, as I think the indictment says, that he lost the election, but he thinks he lost it unfairly and he thinks he got cheated and thinks he got screwed over. Well, he's perfectly within his rights to say that. Uh, the problem comes when he's trying to tell the Secretary of State of Georgia, well, I just need you to find me 12,000 votes uh, so we can turn this around, or he's facilitating uh, a slate of fake electors to send to the uh, United States Congress to delay the certification. So, so whenever you have a conspiracy or a fraud charge, most of the time, a lot of times speech is involved in those cases too. So, so they're trying to argue that that's, he's protected in that context uh, by that particular right. And it's hard for me to determine whether this is actually a political strategy or a public relations strategy. And to try to bring it back home to what your initial question was, he's really been successful at convincing a large segment of our population that our institutions are no longer trustworthy, uh, whether it's Dr. Fauci and, and all of the discussion about COVID-19, uh, the school systems, the electoral system, and now the criminal justice system. So I think, you know, like I said, it's hard for me to see how his First Amendment argument wins in court, but maybe the goal is not to win in court, but to win um, publicly among his among uh, his followers such that they will not trust any verdict that comes out of any cases uh, surrounding his guilt or innocence. Professor Moses, I see you nodding your head. <laughs> What would you like to, to add to that? I've got some thoughts, but I'm, I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> One of our guests. You know, so, yeah, I'm nodding because I think Professor Corbett is completely correct in the sense that he doesn't intend for any of these cases to make it to trial. Right. The ultimate goal is to get back into office so he can dispose of them. Right. And not be tried at all. Um, and so that's why I believe he continues this rhetoric related to each of these cases to make sure that his base um, continues to believe that they're fraudulent charges and this is all part of the political process. Um, I think the irony of that, of course, is, you know, prior to his presidency, uh, we at least had this belief or common belief that DOJ was separate and apart from the presidency. The president couldn't tell DOJ what to do. Um, but his term blurred the lines um, that we had set. And so for him to now come and say, well, this is all political and illegitimate, it's laughable, honestly, when you think about the fact that when President Biden assumed the role, he reinstituted those lines that were previously drawn prior to his term. Yeah, and to, to just underscore what, what all of you have been saying, um, 
in terms of, and kind of going back to what Dr. Hall was saying, uh, whether this is self-serving, and of course it has a result of making him a martyr, but it absolutely is self-serving. Um, we know that he's using all of these indictments and lawsuits against him for raising funds, right? So fundraising, uh, being able to pay for his legal defense, being able to pay for his campaign, and the the end game in terms of the delay, like I'd like for us to flesh that out a little bit more, just in terms of the the way a criminal case will proceed. So I guess the first question is, are there dates set for any of these criminal cases? And if so, what are your thoughts about whether the trials will in fact occur on, on the set dates? Well, I can try to speak to that. Uh, I know that I looked at it before I got on today to make sure I wasn't wrong about them. There's a hearing. They just had a hearing um, last week. They have another one coming up with regard to the D.C. charges. That's on Friday, but I don't think the judge has set a firm trial date as of yet. But the charges that we talked about in New York, that's supposed to happen in March of next year. Uh, the charges that we talked about in Florida, that's supposed to happen in May of next year. That's the classified documents case. And somewhere in there is going to be that civil defamation case. I don't know exactly where that's going to fall. But to bring people to, to tie it home to some of the earlier points, the first Republican debate is going to be on August the 23rd, I believe. Uh, and the Iowa caucus happens in January of 2024. Uh, so all that leads up to the Republican convention in July. So uh, part of what I think the the strategy around this most recent set of charges on January 6th is to make them really straightforward, such that there doesn't have to be a ton of back and forth about some of the stuff going on within that case. So the facts are pretty straightforward. The law is pretty straightforward. And I think he's made it difficult uh, to, for Trump and his attorneys to try to delay that trial. Uh, but I do think that both you and Professor Moses are right. I think his goal, his primary legal strategy is to delay all of these things, win the Republican nomination, somehow win the presidency. And then as soon as he is able to do that, then he can appoint his own attorney general. And the very first order of business would be to dismiss all of these federal charges against him. Now, that wouldn't necessarily apply to anything in New York. And it also wouldn't apply to what looks like they're going to be pending state charges down in Georgia. So that's kind of a different ball of wax. But it'd be a whole lot harder to make it to, to throw him in jail if he's sitting in an Oval Office, you know, effective January of what would be 25, I guess. So um, so that's in a nutshell, that's that's kind of an overlap between the political calendar and the legal calendar. Yeah. And uh, that was one of the primary concerns for those who have been uh, observing this whole process is the collision uh, between uh, these criminal cases and the political calendar. Uh, one, uh, some people would argue that it ties, it it, uh, uh, it allows him to make the argument that, you know, this is all political. The only reason they are persecuting me is, uh, is because I'm the front runner. And, uh, and I'm going to win the nomination and I'm going to win the presidency. And remember, I'm doing this for you. I'm the only, uh, I'm the only thing standing you know, between you and the tyranny of the, of the communists and, and the socialists and the fascists and everybody else 
who who is against him um, um, and his supporters. And so uh, that's why there was a lot of consternation as this process was going forward uh, after January 6th in terms of getting to uh, these indictments and trying to avoid this collision uh, between the political calendar and uh, uh, and what would be the uh, trial calendar for uh, the various charges in the various uh, jurisdictions uh, out there. And so, but it is what it is. And uh, I don't think uh, the Justice Department, in fact, I'm sure the Justice Department um, uh, will not let that uh, affect uh, how robust their prosecution of former President Trump will be. And I'm pretty sure that that would also be the case with the prosecutors in New York and in Georgia. And do you know the, you know, just kind of looking at this ob objectively in terms of the dates of the cases. Um, so Professor Corbett mentioned the New York case, March 2024, the Florida a classified documents case, May 2024. This latest indictment around the election interference, we don't have a date yet, but but ideally that would be sometime next year. Um, if there is an indictment out of Georgia, there's got to be a date sometime next year, we would think. And then, um, of course, the civil defamation case. And so even kind of removing um, Trump out of this as being the defendant. We're talking about a number of um, different, although related, right, um, acts, and these are really serious um, charges, right? Thirty-seven counts in the Florida case, thirty-four counts in the New York case. Um, is it? And we're going to have to take a break in a minute, but when we come back, I want Professor Moses to speak on this because she has handled several federal cases, even in the best case scenario. Would we really envision that all of these cases would occur next year? So with that, we're going to go ahead and take a break, but you're listening to The Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with our distinguished guests. We have Dr. Jarvis Hall, who is a political science expert in the NCCU Political Science Department, Professor Donald Corbett, who is a constitutional law expert, and Professor Tamika Moses, who is a former prosecutor and also a law professor here at NCCU School of Law. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Shantae McNeil, and I am a current second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. Book Harvest and Durham's Partnership for Children have partnered with Loco Pops Dessert Cafe, located at 2618 Hillsboro Road, to host a free monthly book exchange. Come August 24th from 3 to 6 p.m. to give a book and get a book. Kids and young adult books are welcome. If you do not have any books to swap, come anyway. There will be extras. 
Free crafts for kids are available while enjoying a new book and desserts. Any extra books accumulated from the book exchange will be donated to the book harvest. And remember, as Bell Hooks once said, if you deprive working class black people of access to reading and writing, you are making them that much further removed from being a class that can engage in revolutionary resistance. This is Shantae McNeil with your Community Spotlight. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Kiana Woods, and I'm a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The Contemporary Art Museum in downtown Raleigh will be hosting a Sunday market every Sunday in August from 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. The event will feature vendors specializing in delicious foods, captivating art, stylish clothing, and much more. The Contemporary Art Museum is located on 402 West Martin Street, Raleigh, North Carolina. This is Kiana Woods with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Interview here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking about the numerous indictments that are pending before the former President Donald Trump. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, Professor Don Corbett, Professor Tamika Moses, and Professor Jarvis Hall. So right before the break, I was asking the question, right? We had kind of recapped all the dates that were coming up next year. Um, certainly the, the prosecutors would like to have the trials occur as soon as possible, and ideally before the election. But as Professor Corbett noted, you know, you've got a number of election-related activities that are coming up. But all of that aside, there are no fewer than three cases and possibly five very serious trials that Trump may be looking at in 2024. So we've been setting aside that he is a former president, that he is running for uh, the Republican nomination. That would be a very ambitious goal for any defendant. So Professor Moses, former prosecutor, can you share your thoughts on um, what the is it realistic to anticipate or expect that that one or more of these would actually um, uh, take place? And and as you share your thoughts, can you talk about um, the frequency of the delay in criminal federal trials? Sure. So there, there's an old saying that say, says the wheels of justice turn slowly. Right. And part of the reason for that is because despite in a defendant's speedy trial rights, um, those rights are subject to tolling because they're naturally, even if it's not a defendant like former President Trump, there are going to be delays in any case. Um, so early in a case, it is very usual for a trial date to be set. Um, and it's also very usual for that trial date to be pushed back for an, a variety of reasons. Um, here, of course, some of those reasons might include discovery, right? To the extent he has the same counsel, which I believe he does, I, I'm not sure. In the January 6th case and the documents case, one of the reasons for a delay is going to be 
the need to sift through all of the voluminous discovery, prep witnesses, interview people, et cetera. All of those things are going to lead to delays in each of those trial dates. Um, and again, it's not because it's President, former President Trump who is the defendant. It's because that's something that's just a normal part of the process. You know, one of the things that I find interesting uh, in this case, uh, or in these cases, uh, is the fact that uh, in uh, New York, the uh, lead uh, prosecutor is an African-American. Uh, in the uh, Georgia uh, grand jury investigations that are underway, the, uh, the attorney general there is uh, an African-American. Uh, in the uh, latest uh, indictment uh, dealing with the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection, uh, the uh, trial judge is uh, an African-American uh, in a uh, jurisdiction that is a majority uh, African-American. And already uh, there are efforts to uh, move that trial out of that uh, jurisdictions and or to uh, recuse uh, that uh, judge from uh, being able to preside uh, over that uh, case. I was, just want to you know, raise with you the significance of one, the involvement of all these African-Americans in high places in these prosecutions. And what is the meaning of the, uh, uh, the Trump prosecutions to African-Americans generally uh, when we look at the uh, political uh, uh, campaign uh, advanced by the uh, by Donald Trump and the Trumpets uh, that's uh, that's out there uh, supporting uh, this uh, efforts to uh, keep him from being prosecuted. Uh, so, uh, why don't we start with uh, Dr. Hall, uh, the political scientist on this? Well, I think it's very significant that many of the uh, people who will. Uh, inevitably have a significant impact on whether Donald Trump will will be free or not in the next few years uh, lies in the hands of uh, of, uh, of African Americans and especially given the um, uh, questionable uh, racial history uh, of Donald Trump all the way from uh, his practices as a landlord uh, in New York City, uh, to uh, his his uh, questioning of the uh, uh, of the birth of um, um, of uh, of a Barack Obama, to any number of things, and of course, we know that one of the typical things that he does, especially when uh, it is um, an African American or a person of color. Uh, that uh, is a judge or a prosecutor, uh, he will project uh, this racist notion and call them racist, uh, even though it's, it's clear that he's trying to do this to stir up uh, racist sentiments. And uh, uh, he has become a master at that. And also, we should not forget that in the places where is alleged that he defrauded voters, that in many instances, it was in places, it was in urban centers where there are significant uh, African-American populations. Uh, we should not lose sight of that. Um, uh, not only African-American populations, but 
say in Arizona um, and New Mexico, for example, um, other people of color, uh, but in Georgia, in Michigan, uh, to talk about Detroit, in Georgia, to talk about Atlanta, uh, um, in Pennsylvania, uh, to talk about um, mm -hmm. illegal votes or vote um, dumping uh, around um, Philadelphia. And so uh, the, the racial element is certainly there, and, uh, and, and we can't lose sight of that uh, either. Professor Corbin. I agree 110%. It's got a, it's the height of irony that in this DC case, we'll have to stand up before a, uh, a black judge who has seen a number of defendants from January 6th and uh, ended up sentencing them uh, to, to various jail terms, which he's now using as an argument as to why he can't get a fair trial in front of her. Uh, she, uh, Anyone will tell you she has a, an excellent reputation for the rights uh, of the defendants and is known to actually be difficult on prosecutors in terms of their presentation of evidence. But uh, he will use the optics uh, in, in any way that he can to sow doubt about the process. And uh, he did call, I, I, to Professor Hall's point, I saw him uh, earlier this week call Fannie Willis, who is the uh, attorney general in Georgia, a, a, a young racist. Uh, so anything that he can to deflect on the legitimacy of these processes, uh, he's going to do it. And he is certainly not above race baiting uh, to make his point if he thinks that will aid his end result. Mm -hmm. That's uh, the only thing I'll add to the points that were made is just that it's also just a great reminder of who else, um, of the folks who are against his efforts, right? I think the media and other folks get so saturated in, in, in the minutia of all like his claims that they forget that he's speaking to a particular audience. Um, and there are way more folks out here that are not interested in hearing that rhetoric and are more interested in making sure that he's held accountable. Um, and so to have these actors in these positions and see that they are people of color actually just helps to remind everyone involved that, look, there's, there's more to this. Um, and even if folks think this is ultimately a futile effort, um, it's still important to show that we're willing to hold him accountable because it is necessary and important for democracy. Which raises a question, right? For, for those who have read the indictments and have been looking at the um, evidence that's been presented so far, it's hard to... Um, not accept that, you know, there's definitely smoke here, right? And, but for those that are unwilling to kind of do their own research on the foundation of these indictments, when we think about the democracy in this country, are we able to um, firm up our democracy if half of the electorate, if you know, 75 million people in this country just refuse to uh, kind of do their own research as opposed to just listen to what Trump is saying and, and agree with him. Or um, because they agree with his political persuasion are unconcerned about that. And I suspect that there's a, a large percentage who may believe that he is guilty of what he's been accused of, but they don't care 
because they like his message and they like his political stance. What are your thoughts about that? Professor Hall, you want to start us off? Yeah, you're right about um, there are a, uh, a significant segment of the uh, of the electorate that actually believe that he has committed crimes and serious crimes, but don't care. Uh, they uh, uh, think that he did a wonderful job, uh, even those in the various states that were targeted by uh, he and his uh, co-conspirators uh, to come up with the um, um, uh, 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 the fake slate of electors and all of this kind of stuff. And he was trying to convince them to play along with them. Um, in many instances, they were Trump supporters, but they refused to um, um, go along with the schemes that they had come up with. But again, if you ask them, would they support Trump again? They said they would support Trump again. And so I think, I think that's very, very scary. And, um, uh, and, and what it means for our democracy, it means that we have a lot of work to do. It means that, uh, we really need to press this notion of, of, of a televised trial and especially the, the, the uh, January 6th, uh, uh, trial and, uh, uh, because the American people need to see for themselves and not have it filtered, especially through um, uh, commentators and analysts uh, uh, from a, a certain persuasion. I'll just leave that as vague as I intended. Uh, <laughs> leave it vague. <laughs> Professor Corbett. I would agree with Professor Hall across the board. I think it's I only made a C plus in psychology. coming, but. But I feel like one of the pieces of Trump that I would call evil genius is that he saw and directly communicated with a segment of the American population that politicians have traditionally just overlooked and bypassed. And he was able to see them in a way and acknowledge them in a way that uh, historically just hadn't been done by either party, really. And, and I think once you feel seen by someone, then you have an emotional attachment to that entity. And, and that's why all logic doesn't work. All persuasive efforts don't work. They see him as this is our guy. He cares about me. And because he cares about me, anybody that's against him, I'm against them too. So I wholeheartedly agree with Professor Hall. I hope uh, for people who don't know, federal courts uh, are usually closed to cameras and don't allow uh, any broadcast projections. I really hope that that will be waived uh, for this particular trial. I think it's an incredibly important trial for the democracy, uh, the democratic reasons that Professor Dawson raised, but also for people who are, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of the population where you're never going to convince that this is a legitimate process. But for people who may, uh, I, I think it's one thing to be able to stand up in a, on a campaign speech and, and say something, but then when you get in that box and you have to put your hand on the Bible, it looks a little bit different and it's going to sound different. And I think it's really important that people be able to see that. So, you know, it's, it's, if anything for me and what I tell my students is it's been evidence of how fragile our democracy really is, uh, you know, but for um, a few honest brokers in, in important States, Georgia, you know, Nevada, et cetera, you know, he might be sitting in office right now. Uh, but those folks decided they were going to, 
uh, role with the rule of law there. They were going to reject his very, very intense overtures uh, to do what he wanted them to do. And, and but, but democracy is still on trial. And in some ways, after Trump is gone, because so many people have now slid over to this side of the fence, we still have to worry about it in ways that I don't think we did before. Professor Moses. I echo all of those sentiments. Um, I think two things. First, this is a great opportunity for America to deal with her dirty laundry um, as it relates to racism and other things that have been underlying um, a lot of the efforts uh, through Trump and his administration right now. Um, and secondly, because our democracy is very fragile and was also almost taken, uh, this is just a reminder that everyone needs to get involved, right? It's not just by voting, you really need to vet the people who are running for office right now um, and really get involved in these local elections to make sure that your electors responsible for the next uh, election cycle are not in line with the Trump plan, right? Because again, as Professor Corbett already mentioned, it was those few um, who decided to stand on the constitution and do what they were supposed to do, but who knows who they'll be replaced with going forward. Um, so everyone needs to stay vigilant, um, participate, and get involved in this process. Well, you know, in, um, when I was uh, studying the law and uh, trying to educate myself about this democracy and our history, uh, I was always under the impression that uh, America was strong and the democracy could stand anything. But in the last uh, uh, six years, uh, I've been uh, convinced that this is, as uh, has been mentioned, a very tenuous uh, situation and uh, democracy is on the brink and that uh, it is going to take a lot to restore the faith uh, because every institution of government has been severely challenged by uh, Donald Trump and his uh, allies at the state and federal level, such that uh, many of them are now running uh, the country. And uh, as long as that is occurring, uh, then uh, the USA is, uh, is in danger. And with that, we are going to have to conclude this episode. Of course, there are many more things that we could we could say about this case. And in fact, we will, because as we've already mentioned, there are so many um, cases that are pending. We expect that there will be others. Next year, 2024, there will be much to talk about as we um, get full into the presidential campaign. So, of course, we will have the three of you back as we continue these discussions. But as always, we want to thank you for allowing us to uh, intrude upon your very busy schedules yet again. But we'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jarvis Hall. He is a political science expert at NCCU Political Science Department and Professor Tamika Moses, former federal prosecutor and NCCU School of Law Professor of Criminal Procedure and Evidence, and Professor Donald Corbett, who is a constitutional law expert and teaches constitutional law among other courses. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you've enjoyed the show. 
If you have any questions, please send us an email at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you missed this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.